When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, welcome to Profoundly Pointless. My name is Nick Vinzant. Coming up in this episode, dogs. Real ones and fake ones. The Iditarod is drawn out over such a long period of time and there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of like, I don't know if I can actually pull this off or if I can physically do this as as an individual myself. It's 50 below zero. So on a really good trail, good conditions, you know, we're going to be looking at probably 120 uh, about 120 miles a day would be a, a normal, faster You're trail winning pace. You're kidding me. I know, right? <laughs> That's exactly what I think. The best use of my energy is to recognize my greatest quality for this team is my opposable thumbs right here, right? I want to thank you so much for joining us. If you get a chance, please leave a review. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. So our first guest is one of the best dog mushers in history. This is five-time Iditarod champion, Dallas CV. So wh- when did you realize that this was something that you wanted to do? Um, I grew up mush and sled dogs, being around dogs, and they were always a huge part of my life. I would say um, when I decided that I was going to jump in with both feet and make this my adult lifestyle was after I got done wrestling. I was a, a wrestler for a long time, did Olympic style primarily. And then had my career cut a little short due to too many concussions. And really, I think that's when I've kind of turned my focus to, all right, where's, where's another sport where I can be miserable and my, uh, my one good trait, which is being really good at being miserable and keeping a level head through it all and making good decisions. Where does that have value? And um, where can I do that in a way that I enjoy it? And that's mushing. I, I like the challenges it puts on me as a person. Uh, but more so I enjoy the connection with the animals, you know, overcoming challenges with your best friends, which are in this case, dogs, you know, get, getting out there and do something difficult. And it's not always fun in the sense of, oh, isn't this so much fun sitting on the beach with, you know, a drink in your hand, but it's fulfilling and it's rewarding. Okay. So from the complete outside, know nothing about it perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Like, all right, you stand there on the back of the sled, you tell the dogs to go. <laughs> Tell me why it's way harder and more complicated than that. Like, what are you really doing? Yeah. You know, at at some points in time, it is that simple because we're working with a dog that loves to mush as much as we do, right? And that's really the core of this is the sled dogs, this is their passion. This is what they love to do. Just like if you have a lab, you can throw that ball at I mean, 10,000 times, 20,000 times, and they're still going to go running over there and fetch it and bring it back. Your border collie, it doesn't matter if it's sheep, if it's chickens, if it's kids, if it's bicycles, they're going to try to herd it and push them all together because that's what they're programmed to do. And in sled dogs, they're programmed to run, to travel, to pull. That's what they love doing. So at times, it really is just that simple. At the beautiful times, when you're sitting on the sled, the dogs are cruising down the trail, everything's happy, hunky-dory, no problems in the world. Uh, the challenge is 
to try to do it better, to try to set the dogs up for more success, to understand them to such a level that you see what's going to happen in their physiology three, four, five days from now. And that takes understanding to really master this sport. You have to understand these guys to know the paces that they can run. How much rest do they need after each section of this trail? What speed should we be traveling in? How is this individual going to react to this different trail condition? Is it going to take more of a toll on their body? Is this an easier trail for them? And then not just as an individual, but as a team, how is it going to affect each of them? So we're monitoring the calories that are going in, the attitude amongst the team, how they're acting. Are they having a great day? Are they having a rough day? How am I going to accommodate their challenges on a day-to-day basis? How am I going to lift them up when it's, you know, just a crappy weather day and it's maybe not as much fun? How am I going to kind of bring them down later when they're all gung-ho and excited and going way too fast and I know that this isn't a sustainable pace? How do I help monitor them and, and keep them on that level keel? So it's challenging primarily because you have to understand, and nowadays it's a 14-dog race, you have to understand all 14 of those dogs individually so intimately well, and then also as a single unit, how they interconnect. And then finally, you add the different species, the human, into the equation, and you have to understand how you're going to react to eight, nine days of sleeping very little or not sleeping at all and being, at times, down to 55, 57 below zero temperatures. Because our emotions, our feelings start making effects, oftentimes negative effects, on the team. When we're sour and we're miserable and we think everything's going wrong and we're only looking at it from our human perspective. you got to kind of get out of your own head, out of your own body and look at what the dogs see and, and always set them up for success. That's really the key to managing any team, right, is, is making sure that all your players are having the best day of their life. It is kind of interesting, right? It's kind of like managing 14 people that you can't talk to. You're right. In in the short term, that is exactly what it is. Uh, the dogs, you know, they are very much so a pack animal. And they require, I should say, demand good pack structure. And if we're going to insert ourselves as the leader, we have to provide that pack structure. And we have to be aware of everything that's happening. Where humans value comfort the sled dogs value security and that security comes from a strong pack. When, when you look at the people who win, you know, you've won the Iditarod, I think five times, right? Yep. That's the, that's the race that everybody, at least in North America has kind of heard of. When you look at the people who win those races though, is it like, okay, look, Dallas has the best dogs. We all know he's got the best dogs. He could sit back there and watch TV all day. And those, like how much of it is just the physical ability of the dog itself? That is definitely a factor, but, you know, and and I've played with this because I I love breaking down why do teams have success? Why is this team winning? Why is this team not winning? And I think at the end of the day, I would always take the great musher with an okay dog team. I would choose that one every single time over the great dog team with an okay musher. Even the best mushers, I think we're leaving a lot on the table. You know, we're still learning. We're still getting better at developing and maximizing the sled dogs. So I I don't think that the limiting factor at the moment is the raw genetic potential. I think these dogs are still capable of far more than what we're able to, you know, get out of them. And that's going to come through more and better development, more and better nutrition, medical awareness. I mean, I spend most of my day when I'm not mushing, the rest of my day is spent basically as a sports medicine professional. I'm I'm massaging dogs. I'm doing a lot of cold laser therapy with these guys. We're maintaining the foot health. We're always looking at the nutrition. 
where are we, you know, where can we improve on this nutrition on the dogs? You know, is it more omega-3 fatty acids? Is it something over here in the antioxidant range? Are we, are we, do we have the astaxanthin at the right levels, vitamin E? You know, we're, we're trying to understand these guys on the whole spectrum. So I would say the coach makes a bigger difference, but also it goes one layer farther because in most sports, a coach or a franchise is going to recruit or draft players, right? We do all of that in-house. It starts with a puppy being born. And it starts even before that when me as a musher decides which dogs are going to breed. So even the, the raw genetic potential that you have in your kennel is a trait of your musher's knowledge when it comes to breeding and genetics, right? So we can't use that, oh, the dogs aren't good enough as an excuse because we have to take ownership of that and recognize that we decided which dogs to breed. So the particulars, like I've never seen a sled dog before, like they're this big, they're this breed, like kind of fill me in on the particulars, I guess. The Alaskan Husky that we're racing is a mixed breed dog. Now the mixing primarily happened in the early 1900s during the gold rush era in Alaska when sled dogs were incredibly valuable because that was the primary mode of transportation to haul, you know, hopeful miners and supplies out to these gold mining towns and gold and a lot of discouraged miners out of the gold mining towns. And so during that time, sled dogs were incredibly valuable, and this caused people to bring any dog they had to Alaska and then cross those with the Malamutes and Siberians, which were the kind of traditional sled dogs of Siberia and Alaska that have been, you know, helping humans survive in the Arctic for over 10,000 years. And then the resulting mixed breed puppy was just generically coined the Alaskan Husky. And it's smaller than an Alaskan Malamute, um, smaller than most Siberians, but there are some pretty small Siberians out there as well. So most of the Alaskan Huskies are between 50 and 75 pounds. So it's not like a specific, oh, this is the right size. Um, They can look like everything. There's all different colorations in there. The one thing that is common amongst all sled dogs is their innate drive and desire to run and more than run to pull. It's really interesting. I've got about a two-acre fenced-in, you know, playpen out here that the dogs go out into. And out there, they like to trot around, and they'll, you know, one of them will pick up a stick and run, and the other ones will chase them, chase them, of course. But um, they like to run in that setting, but they go absolutely berserk when you get out the harness. And now they get to be in a team and get to pull. It is so strange that it's not just running. It's actually the act of pulling that they enjoy. Now, how, how far can they go in a day? In the Iditarod setting, which is nearly a thousand miles race, um, it's not a matter of how far they can go, it's how far is it smart to go and how far can they go sustainably. Sustainably would be the key word here. So on a really good trail, good conditions, you know, we're going to be looking at probably 120, uh, about 120 miles a day would be a, a normal, faster trail winning pace. Yep. I know, right? <laughs> That's exactly what I think every time You're I see Iditarod. And they're doing this. And, and this is where you get the discrepancy of the human and the dog because I'm getting very little sleep in a day because I'm the only person that can aid my team. I'm the only one that can prepare their food, that can put the booties on their feet, to put the jackets on them when it's time to stop and sleep, give them massages, fix my sled, repack the sled. So when we stop, that's when I actually go to work. So I might be getting an hour to two hours of sleep a day, whereas the dogs are getting somewhere between eight and 12 hours of sleep a day, depending on where we are in the race, if it's early in the race, if it's later, how tough the traveling conditions are, so forth, so on and so forth. So when I'm 
thinking, oh, man, I got to wake the dogs up, put the booties on them and start going. And my head's in a cloud because I haven't slept hardly at all in six or seven or eight days. And I'm getting them hitched up. And all of a sudden, these dogs start barking and lunging and hitting the line, just raring to go. And it blows your mind every single time. And you got to remember, they're, they're getting a little more sleep, but they're also the ones that are actually running down the trail. And that's a pretty phenomenal athlete. Right, right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I honestly, when I asked that question with no knowledge, I honestly thought you were going to say like 10, 20 miles. Yeah. <laughs> that's incredible. A hundred miles? Yeah. So, so here's shit. And there's a few things that allow the sled dogs to and do through that. snow. It's not like they're running on a treadmill. No, no, it's a lot harder than a treadmill run. But and, and to do that sort of distance on a day, it would require a, a fairly good trail where the snowmobiles have gone before the race, kind of pack it down. So there might be some light, squishy snow, maybe an inch or two of soft snow on the surface. But there's generally a packed base underneath that. Not always, but generally. But what makes these sled dogs or allows them to be able to do these incredible feats are a few things. First of all, the canine in general has the largest heart proportionate to its body mass of any mammal out there. So they're already starting with a heart that's bigger than any other mammal. And surprisingly, mammals' heart size is pretty constant relative to their body size, of course, everywhere from a mouse to a whale. It's a pretty constant heart size. And I think it starts at 0.06 of the the animal's body mass can be built to 0.08. Whereas canines start at 0.08 and can build it up to 1% of their body mass. So they have a bigger heart than pretty much any mammal. The second thing that really allows the canine, aka the Alaskan Husky, to be such a phenomenal traveler is their ability to process calories. First of all, a dog system runs on fats as opposed to a human that we run more off of sugar, right? So we're looking at carbs. You look at a marathoner's diet, and it's very simple sugars. It's those fast carbs that are going to hit their system. And when a marathoner talks about bonking at the end of a marathon, it's when they run out of blood sugar, and now their body's having to convert stored fat into energy. That's a very inefficient process for a human. A dog system is designed to run on fats, and they're incredibly efficient at either consuming fats and instantly turning it into energy or storing that fat and then switching and using stored fat for energy. Lastly, a 55-pound sled dog can easily burn and then also consume and replace 12,000 calories a day. 12,000 calories a day. So we think of a a crazy human athlete, let's say Michael Phelps, will hit 12,000 calories in a day. But he's not a 55-pound animal either, right? So when you look at the calories per kilo of animal, their ability to consume and and then process and then utilize those calories makes them the ultimate endurance animal. That is kind of crazy when you think about it, right? Like if you translated that to a normal average human, 150 pound male, that's like 36,000 calories. Yeah. It's Which would be just taking all day just to plain eat that. I would. Yeah. If you could, <laughs> you know, that would be a real challenge. You'd have to be some sort of professional eater to hit that many calories. To get 36,000 calories, you'd be looking at almost 10 pounds of straight fat. Because a pound of fat, I think, is 3,500 calories. And this brings up another really good point as a musher. When I'm coaching new mushers or even I do mushing symposium and things like that, we have to recognize our, our place as a human in the pecking order here. These dogs are the supreme athlete. So especially for me, I was a, I was a wrestler. I had been at the top level. I came out of that, went into mushing. And I viewed myself as a very physical musher, right? I was the guy that could run up all the hills, could ski pull constantly. And yes, I can do that, but that is not the best use of my energy. The best use of my energy is to recognize my greatest quality for this team 
is my opposable thumbs right here, right? I can do massages. I can put booties on. I can prepare food. I am a caregiver on the trail. I have to recognize the fact that they are the athletes. So me trying to run up the hills and, you know, tiring myself out is not helping the team. The way that I help the team is make sure that they feel 100% perfect. If I can do that, they can do incredible things. The Iditarod is about maintaining a healthy team as you travel a great distance. It's about being a good dog person. And the racing part of it almost happens um, in a secondary nature. If you do all these base things really well, good results are going to happen. What was that like when you the first time that you won it? That was, um, that was quite the experience. <laughs> you know, mostly because I didn't know if I could. And I, I have to admit, that's probably part of why I wanted to get into it. I didn't know if I could win the Iditarod. My dad had been racing since I was very young. Um, he, my dad raced every Iditarod from 95 to 2020. So all of my childhood was focused around helping my dad prepare his, his teams for the Iditarod, things like that. So my life was focused around it. And, you know, my dad's a now a three-time Iditarod champion, um, you know, very focused individual, very successful running his, his businesses and whatnot. So when I saw him try and seemingly fail to win the Iditarod year after year, uh, it really put Iditarod champions up on this pedestal for me where I felt like they were superhuman demigods that were able to do it. Because if my dad can't do it, and obviously I looked up to him, you know, then what does it take to do this? And finally, on my dad's 11th attempt, he cracked the code, won his first Iditarod in 2004. Um, and that was like, I think, the moment that I realized that the people that win the Iditarod are not superhuman. They're not demigods. They're just very persistent people that continually, you know, creatively solve problems, continually address things that they have to do this introspective look and say, what am I doing wrong? And take ownership of that. By the time, you know, I started racing with my own kennel in 2009, you know, by that point, my dad had run 15 something Iditarods, maybe more, and had won, you know, one of them. So I didn't know if I could. And when I won my first Iditarod, every single dog in my team had been purchased from another kennel. And what that means is every one of my dogs had just recently been fired from their previous job. <laughs> and so it really was kind of the mixed match hodgepodge team. And that was the first time that a team won the Iditarod that was entirely purchased. So the, the feeling was definitely a bit of a, a bit of uh, shock and surprise, like, holy cow, we actually did it. But uh, definitely the overpowering feeling was a sense of pride, you know, in this team, in these dogs, what they had become. Um, they weren't the best of the best genetically, right? All, these were all the, the worst dog in their litter, not the best dog in the litter. They were the last round draft picks. And that's really, really opened my eyes to how much more we can do about development. The focus is about developing these dogs, not better raw genetic material, but better coaching and development of what you have. So will you look at it? So there's 14. Are they in rows of two? Yep. So will you look at it and say, okay, Steve is great in the middle of the pack on the left side, but he's no right side dog. Like, do you <laughs> really put a lot of thought into exactly where in the harness they go? Mm -hmm. and, and that changes on a, you know, on an hourly basis, honestly. So I do have dogs that are right and left sided. There are dogs that run way better on the right or the left than they do the other side. And uh, that's less common than dogs that will run better forward or back in the team. You know, as you get into the front of the team, it's, it is the most difficult position in the lead position, both physically and mentally. 
physically because they're the ones having to drive the pace. There's no visual reference of how hard they need to go. The only input they have is from how hard they're pulling on the line behind them. So they're always having to put an extra 10% on the line to keep that line tight. If the team's going down a hill and then up the next hill, it's like a, a dog team is a long item. So while half the team is still going down this hill at a greater speed, the front half of the team is having to sprint up the next hill at a much faster speed. So it is harder for the lead dogs physically. Also, if you've run it all, if you draft off of another runner, they provide a wind break, right? And humans run more erect. Obviously, we have more surface area. We create more wind resistance. But look at Tour de France cyclists. They line up because it is easier to be in that slipstream of the cycles ahead of you. And it's the same with the dog team. They kind of have that decreased wind resistance. And then finally, if there's any soft snow on the trail, the dogs in the front are the ones having to put those first tracks in the snow and it gets easier for each pair of dogs behind them. Now, when you get to the back of the team, the dogs right in front of the sled, they oftentimes have to be a little bit more agile, particularly on twisty, windy trails. As we're going around these turns, those back dogs will often have to jump over the center line and get over on the same side as their buddy to avoid an obstacle or the soft snow on the trail. And then as soon as we've completed that turn, they have to get back on their own side so that they can allow their partner to do the same thing, you know, jump over the line when we take a sweeping left-hand turn. So those back dogs, not only are they having to pull forward, but they're having to be quick on their feet and jumping side to side and a little more uh, activity there. So now that we understand that there are easier positions generally in the middle of the team and harder positions generally at the ends of the team, I'm constantly rotating dogs so that nobody gets stuck in the hardest position for too long of a period of time. And this is also where you're judging attitude, how they're doing. And it's like, man, this dog, they need to have an easy day today. So I'm going to put them in the middle of the team. I may not even clip up their harness, you know, just put them on their collar so that they can jog along and not actually feel like they need to be pulling anything or not allowing them to pull because if that harness is hooked up, they will be leaning and pulling. So it's essentially putting them in neutral so that they can have a recovery run versus, you know, actually working hard. Other dogs, man, they're, they're on it today. They're all perky and lively and, you know, they've got that extra energy. Go ahead, take on that harder position in the lead today. So we're constantly moving dogs around in the team. Are you ready for some harder slash listener submitted questions? Oh yeah. (laughs) What is your favorite dog name? It's, it's hard to separate the name from the dog because when I, I mean, I'm sure just like human names, there's got to be human names like, man, I hate people that are not people, but I hate this name because it reminds me of this total jackass I knew back in college. Right. Forever, right? Um, but I would say both the one that co- popped into my head and I'm just going to go with that is Clutch. Clutch, awesome dog. He was on my first, my early racing team, the, the winning teams um, back in the very first one. And he was the biggest hearted dog I've ever seen, an insane appetite. He's one that I I would have to feed him like just one quart of food at a time. I couldn't put all his food in his bowl because he would just smash his head in there and eat it and all the water would squirt out on the side of his face. So, And it didn't matter how much you give him, he would feed him until he'd just be this big old barrel, basically like the lab attitude where if you spill the bag of dog food, he'll eat the entire thing, right? Uh, And just a huge heart on him. Yeah, Yeah, lovely, awesome, fun dog to be around. He wasn't the smartest. He wasn't the best athlete, but he had the biggest heart. What What about the worst? I'm not a fan of um, human names for dogs. I don't know why. It's just, I don't know. Uh, so most of my names are not human names. Do you ever just mush to like the store or like, hey, I'm going to take a quick trip and just take the dogs? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I love doing trips like that because it breaks the cycle of mushing is just for training or just for the idea. No, 
mushing is what I love to do, right? I like traveling by dog team and I like doing it for fun. And sometimes when you really get serious into the racing, you've got to say, hey, am I still enjoying this or are we just so focused on the race that I'm taking the fun out of it by making it a job? Um, so I really make a point to do fun runs. You know, we're just going out to have a good time. It's not about conditioning. It's not about training a new lead dog. It's not about anything. It's just about having a good time. When I think back to my most fun mushing, it's when I was six and seven and I had one or two dogs tied to the front of a, a sled that you used to slide down like a kid's sled just for sliding down the snowbanks. <laughs> you know, having one or two dogs on that and just just traveling. It's the most pure, simple joy. We're just bouncing through the forest, a kid and some dogs having fun. So I check my mail regularly by dog team and the mailbox is about four miles away. Oh yeah. I forgot. That's what Alaska's kind of like, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I kind of like this question. Besides dogs, what other animal do you feel like you could mush? Like, could you do like an elephant? The first one that pops into my head is uh, reindeer. I've spent a fair bit of time yeah. uh, in Norway and Scandinavia. I did uh, the longest race in Europe, which is in the way far north of Norway, uh, twice um, back in 18 and 19. And they, I mean, mushing, or I, I'm sure it's not called mushing, but driving reindeer is actually a thing. The Russians do it. I've seen some videos. They look a little bit sketchy to say the least, but um, you know, they're Russians mushing or driving these reindeer teams. And I don't know how well the reindeer are trained, but it's uh, it looks pretty rudimentary to me. Um, obviously up here, there's a history with, uh, or elsewhere also, but uh, you know, horse-drawn carriages and things like that. But I saw this one really cool picture uh, in one of the local restaurants around here. And it's actually back in the early 1900s. And there is a moose that they had trained to pull a sleigh or carriage of some sort, which really surprised me. But they actually had like this moose pulling stuff. And that would be that would be a challenge because that is very much a wild animal (laughs) and big, very large. For people who maybe haven't encountered mooses like those are though that you do not fuck with a moose. No, that is way. It's basically like a small school bus on legs. Every time I've seen one. Yep. They're shockingly large, but I I will say there's few things as majestic in the wilderness as a big bull moose. I mean, there's one, because I've grown up eating moose. Right now, that's that's the meat I have in my freezer is is moose. Um, And the last one I got, or not the last one, one of the ones I got was about seven and a half feet tall to the shoulders. Just think of a standard doorway is six foot eight inches. So seven and a half feet tall. That's the shoulder of this thing. Yeah, they're a massively large animal, and they are our biggest concern while mushing in in the wintertime. That's the one animal that can give you problems and actually be aggressive towards a dog team, uh, especially late in the winter when there's deep snow. The moose, I feel for them. They've got a very rough life. But if the snow is deep, it's covered up all their food. If it's a really cold weather or cold winter, they have no fat reserves left, and they can be just running out of energy. And it's easy for them to, you know, miss – misinterpret a dog team for a pack of wolves, which is their main predator that time of year. So if they don't feel like they can run away, their next instinct is to turn and charge. So we're always on the watch out for moose and making sure that our our team and moose don't have a bad interaction. Okay. I don't know how to quantify this necessarily, but I've always heard that the Iditarod is basically like one of the hardest things in the world. Is it, or is that kind of like, that's a little bit of media propaganda kind of stuff. I would have a hard time saying that's the hardest thing in the world. I mean, that's a pretty dang bold statement. Look at the things that humans have survived 
or done, right? And in most of the most extreme things humans have done, they have not done it by choice, or they've done it in a situation where the other choice was death. But yeah, it is physically challenging in a way that's different than, let's say, like an Ironman triathlon, which is a common thing that humans do electively. Um, that would probably be more difficult in an acute way, in a short term, all right, the next 12 or 14 or 18 hours, I don't know how long it takes, is going to be absolutely brutal. But the other thing that they do in that time frame is you put your head down, you don't think, you just go, right? And you know that that end is in sight. It's all done in less than a day. The Iditarod is strawn out over such a long period of time, and there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of like, I don't know if I can actually pull this off or if I can physically do this as as an individual myself. It's 50 below zero, and while the dogs have good hair and they're designed for this and they're burning all these calories, which produces a lot of heat, I am not developed to live in 55 below zero temperatures. So your feet are freezing and there's this uncertainty and, and probably one of the more similar settings to put it in in that case would be more like um, special forces training. Let's take, you know, hell week for SEALs. That would probably be a more similar setting where it's like, I don't know if I can complete this. And there's the real fear, not that you would necessarily die. Of course, that is an option, but that you might not pass. It's more of a pride thing. You know, I may fail here. You're, there's the uncertainty of I have to make decisions and I don't know, even though I think I made the best decision, I don't know if that'll be enough to accomplish what I have in front of me. And then also there's the tactical decisions that we have to deal with and you're getting hit with one decision after the next, after the next, after the next. And uh, it starts to play with you on a kind of an emotional level, especially when you're on low sleep, very, very low sleep. And sleep deprivation has to be one of the most you know, painful things, or it is the most painful thing about this. And it is, it hits humans very, very hard. When you're on day seven and not sleeping, you're not yourself. And all your facade and ego, even the stuff you didn't think you had a facade or an ego or an image that you project, all of that comes away and you are down to just you. And if you're not comfortable with who you are at the very core, it's a terrifying situation for a lot of people. And that's something that's really important with mushing and dogs. You have to be comfortable with who you are at the very base because it will be exposed. And that's something that a lot of people don't ever turn and face. Secondly, the dogs see right through those facades, right? You can do all the pump up hype for your humans because they understand the words you're saying. The dogs don't understand the words. They see the intent behind it. That is true. You can't fool them. What's your favorite piece of musher lingo? That's simple. Uh, when we're, I'd say we're, we always end up uh, like, I'm going to go booty the dogs because we're putting little shoes on their feet. That's a constant project, right? We put up, each dog has four feet um, and we got 14 of them in the team. So, uh, you know, that's something we do before every run, taking the booties off after the run. So probably bootying dogs. Wait, if you got 10 dogs, that's 40 feet. Man, that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> that's a lot of work. Yep. Damn. And, and, and that's the job um, that you bare handed almost that's always, pretty- which causes a little bit of frostbite for your, for your hands. Because, again, our hands aren't designed to be you know, uncovered at those temperatures. So especially if it's windy, uh, even if it's only 5 or 10 below zero, which is reasonably, co- or reasonably warm here, the wind is the worst. So when I have to put those boots on in a stiff wind in any sort of cold temperatures – you feel your hands like dry out and start to almost, yeah, basically start to freeze and your skin gets to be like real thin papery almost. So any little nick on them will instantly become a cut as they become very brittle. And then you'll actually see on the backs of your hands kind of at this level below this knuckle and also above it on each finger, you'll get a little football shaped welt where the wind is hitting the back of your hand as you're putting those boots on and create a welt across there. 
just from basically frostbite that happens in a matter of seconds. Um, you know, one particular year I'm thinking of 2009, we had a horrific storm on the Bering Sea coast and it was both very, very cold and super strong winds. It effectively shut down the race for 18 hours until the wind started to let up. But I was out there caring for the dogs. I built like little snow forts around them to create a wind block. And I think the wind chill factor in that was like 115 below zero and exposed skin freezes basically instantly in those temperatures. And that's why we weren't moving. We were stopped down because it's just not safe to travel or move in those type of conditions, despite the dogs, you know, being evolved to live in these conditions. You know, they went from being wolves in Alaska to being domesticated wolves, AKA the Alaskan Malamute to being modern day Alaskan Huskies. And they never became a house dog. They never lost the traits and qualities that allowed them to be successful Arctic survivors as wolves. So they are very well developed for these conditions. Us humans, we didn't develop in these conditions. <laughs> so we're the ones who have to adapt and get better clothing and gear and you know, watch your hands freeze. The dogs, they're incredibly tough and incredibly well adapted for this, for this lifestyle. This is what they've been doing for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. That's pretty much all the questions I had, man. Is there anything you think we missed or what's kind of coming up next for you? Yeah, I, I would say the only thing that's um, left out there is, you know, mushing is definitely not your mainstream sport. It's not on, you know, ESPN every every Sunday. Um, you know, so this one, if you do want to follow mushing and watch dog races, doing it online is definitely the best way. And and now that that's become more common, it's it's, I guess, a little easier and more accessible for people. But, you know, go to Iditarod.com. That's the official Iditarod webpage, you know, and the Iditarod is the world championships. It is the biggest dog sled race out there. You're going to see the best of the best teams show up at that race. It starts the first Saturday in March. And then leading up to the race all winter long, you know, social media is a great way to follow mushers in the process and learn more about it. You know, start to understand the individual dogs and what goes into developing them. And there's a lot of information like us particularly that we try to put out that helps people become a better steward to their dog or their pet. At the bottom of all of this, it's about the human-animal connection, which I think is an awesome and sacred thing that you know humans would not have developed in so many places around the world without the aid of animals. And that even just 100, definitely 200 years ago, your connection with animals was much closer. We depended on them. We relied on them. And that builds that really close, tight bond. Nowadays, our relationship with pets is a convenience. It's a a luxury item. We like to have a pet, but we don't have that super close bond as you would if you relied on that pet. So take, for example, somebody who has a nice fluffy dog. It's a great dog. They come home from work. They pat it on the head, say, good dog, take it for a walk. There's a friendship. There's a relationship, but there's not a connection like there would be for somebody with their seeing eye dog. They rely on each other. That's going to be a much closer bond. So I guess what I would just say is, you know, check out the social media, Dallas CV on Facebook, and we got all the other platforms as well. The information is on the Facebook to get on YouTube and Instagram and Twitter and those ones. We have great fluffy husky pictures, puppy pictures, all that good stuff, but also information about, you know, trying to develop that closer relationship with your pet to enhance that experience of the human-animal connection, enhance the quality of life for your dog and your enjoyment of that pet as a human. I want to thank Dallas so much for joining us. If you want to connect with him, We have linked to him on our social media accounts. We're profoundly pointless on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. And we have also included his information in the episode description. Okay, now let's get to the pointless part of the show. 
All right. Well, I was going to start differently, but John got a new microphone. Why don't you like this? Are you excited? Very excited. Do I sound good? I mean, you sound better. I sound amazing. Thank you. What? What? And when you have heard yourself on this podcast, do you are you annoyed by the sound of your own voice? Absolutely. Actually, true story. I've never told you this before, but uh, when I do listen, uh, I, I I try to do the on my iPhone. You know, you can. Uh, skip forward 10 seconds on uh, when you're yeah. listening. I, I try to do that when I'm talking because I, I just hate the sound of my voice. But do you hate the sound of your voice or do you hate what you sound like, right? Like, do you hate the actual sound or do you hate like, oh, man, I sound like an idiot when I say things? Uh, probably more of the sound like an idiot, but I, I think uh, I think everyone's that harsh on themselves. At least most people are. I probably actually sound fine. I just feel like... Why would anyone want to listen to me? All right. Well, I mean, you sound, you look more sophisticated. You sound more sophisticated. I'm a little bit worried that it's going to ruin the show, that this new microphone is going to go to your head, and you're going to be thinking you're on NPR being John Fancy Pants. This is NPR, John Fancy Pants, and in today's news, I have nothing. Yeah, listen, I, I appreciate it, man. I'm, I'm, I'm glad. It only took me three and a half years to, uh, well, it took me, what, three years to get a light? It took me... Three and a half years to get a microphone. The amazing thing is that I've been telling this to John since the, probably the first 10 episodes. We've been like, hey, man, what do you think about getting a microphone and a light? Yes. Uh, are you a cat person or a dog person? It's a very good question. So I was raised to be a dog person. Uh, love dogs, have a dog uh, currently. But I also have a cat that uh, my wife kind of forced me into getting. And I have to tell you, cats are, cats are, they just seem more sophisticated than dogs. Dogs are like the, to me, dogs are the, the, the dude that's out till 3 a.m. that's going to throw up on your living room floor. Cats are the sophisticated dude that's like home by 11 with a glass of wine and a book. Would you consider cereal to be a soup? No, absolutely not. I, I think that's absurd that you would even ask me that question. No, here's the thing, right? Like when I think of the idea of is cereal soup, my immediate gut reaction is absolutely not. But then once you think about it, there's really no justification for it not being a soup. You just have a gut feeling that it isn't, but you can't really explain why it would not be. I Well, this doesn't make any sense. I was going to say when it starts off not as a soup, but then it goes into a soup, especially a lot of the cereal that gets soggy, which is disgusting. But, I mean, you're essentially putting ingredients. Now, you could say, well, cereal is cereal, right? But beef is beef, but if you put it in stew, it's beef stew. I, I don't have any, I mean, I don't have any, like, good thing to go against that. I, you know what? I right. guess I'm going to say that cereal is a soup. You kind of have to. You don't, you don't agree with it, but you have no way of arguing out of it. All right. So this is going to be my first shout-outs with the microphone. So I'm going to not screw anything up here. Uh, so we're, we'll give some shout-outs here. We'll start off with William Wall, Garrett Hansen, Jordan Denzer, Timothy Houston, uh, Sierra Benner, Buddy Duke, Cameron Talbert, Adriano Martins, Jonas Booker, and uh, Norm Roberts. Wow. It's, it's amazing when I can hear myself talk, like how – how much better or worse it is. Uh, but I think What if this better. ruins the show? <laughs> maybe, but maybe it won't ruin the show. Maybe people will rejoice and say, wow, we can actually understand what he's saying and it doesn't sound like he's eating 
a Twinkie every time he talks. I don't know, but people, like your mouth breathing has really become kind of the soundtrack of the show. <laughs> I don't know what we're going to do without it. All right, a couple of questions for you here. Uh, some real barn burners. Uh, would you rather have three arms and one leg or one arm and three legs? The reason that I wouldn't want to have three legs and one arm is simply because of buying pants. <laughs> like, think of how hard, much harder it would be to find pants. If you only had, right, like the three arms, you could just cut a hole in it and there you go. But in terms of pants, where are you going to find it? You would have to make your own pants. Here's my thought on that, though, is if you were one of the, well, the one of the, if you were the only person in the world with three arms and a leg or vice versa, I mean, you'd have people making you clothes. I don't think that would be a concern. I think I would rather have the three legs because imagine how fast you could run or, you know, all you could do with three legs. I mean, you would have to say that you would probably be proportionately stronger simply because if you thought about it, well, four fingers is stronger than five fingers. <laughs> so you probably would be, but it depends on where the anatomical placement of the leg is. Did you say anatomical? Low, yeah, dude, I've had a microphone for a while. I'm already <laughs> sucking in the smart juices. You're just now tapping into the potential. This by far is going to be our worst uh, viewed or least viewed podcast episode ever. Right. We've done. We've done. <laughs> you don't fuck up by sending roots. me a microphone. We've forgotten our roots. <laughs> NASCAR is fucking awesome. No. Have you seen the monster truck rally? Formula you One. You know now. what I should do? I should invest in gold. <laughs> and that 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 Bitcoin stuff, cryptocurrency. Think, do you understand what that is? Do you have any clue? I mean, I like to think I have a, a working knowledge, and by that I mean I think no. I could hold my own in a conversation, but not to really of any substance, if that makes sense. Like I would just tell you what it is from what I've heard other people say it is, and then move on. Okay, so what is your crypto of choice? Are you more of a Dogecoin, or do you try Ethereum, or what do you think about? Uh, the current state of the crypto market and blockchain. <laughs> well, I, I mean, to me, the cryptocurrency market because of what happened in China when they locked it down, that made a lot of people think that they could get in on it. Go fuck yourself with you <laughs> and your smart microphone. I was just making up words. I don't know what any of those mean. No, no it's, oh my god! It, it is all. It is all confusing. I mean, I do dabble. you host the show now? <laughs> no, my friend, that is you. Uh, all right, uh, last one here, our last question. Uh, would you rather be three feet tall or nine feet tall? If you had like a second to choose and somebody said three feet or nine feet, you, you go nine feet, and then you would regret it for the rest of your life because <laughs> then you would have to deal with being nine feet tall and oh, the fact that the world is just not built for you in any way. Oh, you couldn't get on airplanes. You couldn't get in a car, clothing. Like your life would be miserable. Well, and you think, right, oh, yeah, I'm going to be a basketball player until you realize the tallest NBA player ever, I think, was seven, 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 eight, and he wasn't good at all. Yeah, but I think if you were that tall, that's so tall that you would be good by default. <laughs> like nobody could really, I don't know how anybody could really stop you if you were that tall and had at least the ability to run. You know, because, yeah, all right, so you're seven, six. Well, there's other people who are seven foot, and there's lots of people who are six foot and can guard people who are six six. So, like they they could deal with six extra inches, but could they deal with an extra foot and a half above them plus the <laughs> arms? Like I don't think anybody could deal with that. 
but I would much rather be three feet tall than to be nine feet tall. Well, you're pretty close now, so it's not that far off. Uh, let's see. Current event. I mean, I wrote down Bob Saget. I don't think you're much of a fan of Bob Saget from what I gather. I liked him as a person. I just never really found him to be that funny. So I kind of bring it up for two reasons. Obviously, he passed away. Very unfortunate. But I, I did something I never do yesterday. So we record this on Mondays. He passed away on a Sunday. I sent around a text to my wife when he passed away. And I said, oh, Bob Saget's dead. Uh, probably a drug overdose. I had no idea of anything at that point. Like, And I, was, I'm not, I don't live in Florida, blah, blah, blah. I just assume he was in a hotel. He OD'd, right? So then three or four hours later, it comes out that he maybe had an accident or he just died of a heart attack or natural causes. I feel kind of guilty that I had, like, jumped the gun that just because he's a celebrity or whatever, uh, that, like, drugs or alcohol were involved when clearly the police are saying they weren't. Well, I mean, that's one of those things, like, 95% of the time, drugs and alcohol are involved. But he was... He was much older than I think that people realize because he, for like John and I who are about the same age, people in their early 20s probably don't necessarily remember him that well. But he was a big time superstar. No, he wasn't a superstar. Yeah, but no, he, he was. was. He, was America's he was America's dad. He was pretty. He was like high B list, but he was never like well, an A list celebrity, but he was pretty famous. I mean, yeah, in terms of comedians, right, or whatever, he's not on the A-list, not Martin Lawrence, he's not a Richard Pryor, or, hell, I hate saying this, uh, like OJ? a Bill Burr, even. What's but, wrong with Bill Burr? He's funny, but Bill Burr's just not my kind of guy. Either way, he's not like a he's, George Carlin. However, okay. name me another person uh that had been nicknamed America's dad. I, I can't think of one. Maybe in the 60s or 70s, but I mean, I, I'd have to do some research and actually give a shit for that, and I didn't. Okay. All right. Are you ready for our top five? I, I am. I'm, I'm curious to see how, how we'll mess it up this time. Okay. So our top five is top five fictional dogs. <laughs> What's your number five? I'm going Pluto. It's my number five. I actually struggled a lot with this top five because I think that the top five that would be the easiest ones to do are no longer really relevant. Like, I think the top five is probably completely different now than it could have been 10 years ago. Like, Pluto means oh, yeah, nothing I mean, to me. I would say it means nothing to anyone over the under the age of 45. Ooh. Under, uh, I would say under the age of 30, but yes, I agree with you to some to some degree. Okay, my number five is Barf from Spaceballs. <laughs> Get out of here. He is not one of the top five fictional dogs ever, man. He is, and I'm telling you, he is now. I'm telling you that if you no. were to poll people now, he's much higher than he would have been like 10 years ago. More people probably have an experience with Barf from Spaceballs because that's a funny movie that people still watch as opposed to Pluto that hasn't been in any kind of a cartoon in 20 years. I don't disagree with you, but I I, I also don't agree, if that makes sense. I think if you were to pull 100 people, who do you know more, Pluto or Barf, 96 people are going to say Pluto. I think it would be changed in the younger demographic. Right, just, like, and I think you'll see this throughout my list that I think that the big dogs from before are completely irrelevant now, and there's a new group 
of big dogs. <laughs> big dogs. What's your number four? Uh, so, I mean, this kind of I mean, we might have two completely different lists on our, our thoughts here. Uh, my number four is McGruff the Crime Dog. Meaningless to me. Meaningless. I, I I just think his well, I don't need to get into why I put him on there, but I understand what you're saying. But I think his his historical significance lands him on the list, or should at least. Ghost from Game of Thrones is my number four. Of all time, though? I don't, I mean, we're doing of all time, right? But think of like all the dogs in the last 10 years that you can think of, right? McGruff the crime dog was phased out like 15, 20 years ago, and nobody probably even knows who he is. People know who Ghost is. Like, that's a great fictional dog. Now, I would make this argument. The fictional dogs of the past were much better, but they've now become irrelevant and have been replaced by the new top five fictional dogs, which are much less kind of interesting, but more relevant for today's audience. That's why my number three, Jake the Dog from Adventure Time. I don't even know who that is. Exactly. Because I keep up with the modern trends, and I'm not reading about World War II submarines. <laughs> well, my my number three is probably the most current dog I have on the list, and he's not even current uh, in terms of like the last ten years of coming out, and that's Brian from Family Guy. I could see that. I actually would make a strong argument. I didn't put Brian from Family Guy on there simply because I don't particularly like that show anymore, but I would actually make a strong argument that you could put Brian from Family Guy as number one right now. Yeah, I mean, well, if you're going to do that, you could say the dog from The Simpsons should be on there too. I mean, but he's not... I don't even know the dog's name. Santa's little helper. But (laughs) that's more honorable mention. He was never like a character. I think you could make a strong argument that Brian, that Brian from Family Guy is actually the number one. Yeah, I think I a hundred percent. I think you could, What's especially if you did the last ten years. Yeah, I mean, last ten years. It's, he's probably hand down the easiest choice for the last ten years. Um, I think my number two, which I'm just going to go ahead and say it now, uh, uh, would give him a run for his money, which is Scooby Doo. Okay, if you have Scooby Scooby Doo as number two, where would you put Scrappy Doo? And imagine <laughs> this list goes out to five hundred. If you want to, where are you putting Scrappy Doo? Oh. He's, he's top 25, I would think, but like 24, 25, I, I would probably place him. I could put Scooby-Doo in at around 7, but I wouldn't put Scrappy-Doo in until the 30s. Because who gives a shit about Scrappy-Doo? <laughs> not even Scoop, not even the rest of that gang. That's very uh, true. See, this, this is where our list time difference differ. My number two is a tie between Blue from Blue's Cruise and All the Dogs from Paw Patrol. Well, everybody, with my new mic, this is the last time you'll hear me on this podcast. Uh, John Shaw signing off. Go fuck yourself, Paw Patrol. You got a problem with Paw Patrol? No, I shouldn't have said that because for all I know, someone who is on that show listens. Uh, I, the Paw Patrol dogs? No, I didn't know. They're, of all time, this is a terrible list. But I'm telling you, if you polled people, this is, the fictional dogs is a huge generational gap. I think that if you polled people 35 and up, their top five fictional dogs is completely different than people 35 and under who their fictional dogs are. More, more, I would argue, than almost any other kind of top five list that we could come up with. The fictional dogs is generationally divided. 
but I agree with you. But I I feel like my list, you could pick uh, Brian for Family Guy, Scooby Doo, Goofy, maybe and, and and Pluto. I feel like those would be cross generational. I don't, I don't think, think it, so. I disagree maybe, with you. I maybe think that Pluto they- and Goofy, but. I, I, I even think those would resonate with the 35 and under crowd. Are we my number one? Yeah. Uh, Snoopy. Snoopy. Yeah, Snoop, I mean, but see, Snoopy Cross is generational. Everybody knows who Snoopy is because they still watch the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Well, plus, name me another dog that has their own section of an amusement park. Snoopy has its own section at Cedar Point. He does? Yeah. Is it lame? It seems like it would be the lamest section of Cedar Point. I mean, I haven't... God, I hope it's still there. I haven't been there in 10 years, a decade. Uh, but when I was... It had, I don't know. Snoopy had its own roller coaster, had its own like playhouse, playtime, stage shows. Well, that doesn't sound boring. Uh, yeah, my number one is Snoopy. Okay, I'm just going to run down my list. There's a lot. So I'm going to run down my list of honorable mentions. You give me a yes or a no. Okay. Toto. Yes. Fang. Yes. Fang is the dog from Harry Potter. Yeah. I would make an argument that some people could put Fang on the top five list if they're big Harry Potter fans. Uh, Odie? Not entirely sure I know who that is. Garfield, I think. I think that's Garfield's Oh, buddy. yeah, fuck the dog. It's all about the cat. Yeah. Sure. Airbud. Ooh, see, that's on my honorable mention. Airbud, cross-generational, I feel. Nobody has more movies than Air Bud. <laughs> when, well, yeah, they're not good movies, but yes. No. I've always been fascinated at who is making and who is watching those movies. And if you're writing Air Bud, do you just feel like a failure? <laughs> you just, uh, I, do, you, do you tell your parents that you're working in Hollywood and then not really answer the question of what you're doing? When they no. ask you, like, hey, I'm working in Hollywood. Oh, yeah, it's, what are you working on? Oh, just some movies, you know? It's not that bad. What are you Come writing? On. Oh, you know, a movie about a dog. No, it's, it's Is it not Air Bud? It's not. No, it's, it's good, just, man. Yes or no, do you admit to your parents that you just yeah. wrote, not even the original Air Bud, but like Air Bud 7, Golden <laughs> yeah. Receiver? Of course. I Making money, right? I mean, direct to DVD. <laughs> direct to Betamax. Yeah, oh, man. Uh, yourself. Doug from Up. Uh, no. Clifford. Yes. Santa's Little Helper. Yes. Hong Kong Fooey. Yes. Hong Kong Fooey was one that I, out of nostalgia, really wanted to put in my five top five. Yeah. Because Hong Kong Fooey, more than just a dope ass name. Okay, it who did? Do you have anything else in your honorable mention? Uh, no. Toto Lassie. Which we kind of already talked about all those. I don't care about Lassie at all. <laughs> yeah, we you've made it very clear. Um, no, Benji. Mm. Mm. Yeah, man. Uh, yeah, that's it. That's all I got. It, it feels like there should have been more famous fictional dogs. Oh, Wishbone. We should have put Wishbone on Wishbone? my honorable mention. Had a show in the mid '90s. It was a like a crime solving beagle, I think, or something. What? Is it aired only on like cable access, Detroit? <laughs> I know. I think it was a PBS show. I think, but I could be I could be wrong on who had it. Okay, that's gonna go ahead and do it for this episode of Profoundly Pointless. I want to thank you so much for joining us. If you get a chance, 
please leave a review. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. And let us know what you think are some of the best fictional dogs. I think the easy thing is to go towards kind of the classics, right? The lassies, the old yellers, Pluto, Goofy. But I just don't, I don't know if that's it anymore. I think, I think the new kids on the block have taken over. And it's now Blue Clues, Blues, try to say Blues, Blue, try to say Blues Clues fast. It's hard. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.